Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. All right, excited to be back with part two of our episode uh, with Dr. Damon Smith. Um, Like I said in part one, when we originally recorded this episode, we had not planned on splitting it, Um, but uh, diving into part two of white mold and soybeans with Dr. Damon Smith. How long can the sclerotia survive in the soil? Yeah, the the literature out there suggests about five years, uh, but we think it's probably a little longer than that. There's some anecdotal evidence that it might be, you know, more towards eight years or so. I I when I talking to farmers, I just tell them it's if it's there, then you have sclerotia there, and they're 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 likely pretty viable. So it's going to be a long-term management thing once once you have those sclerotia there, and you sort of have to just consider a field infested at that point. So then it then it comes down to you know all right, what are some things I can do to maybe get those sclerotia to degrade right? Mm-hmm. So no-till uh, has been a great uh, method. Uh, so we we've seen some folks here in Wisconsin adopt no-till. Uh, and be, you know, pretty successful over a five to 10 year period where they've been able to, you know, essentially rotate them out, themselves out of, you know, a white mold situation. The caveat there is that, you know, again, those, those sclerotia can actually be in multiple layers in the, in the soil. And so if you did go in and you turn some, some ground back up, you could potentially bring some sclerotia back to the top that are, that were dormant and, but still alive. So you do have to sort of keep that in mind, but you know, no-till is a big one. I've, I've seen folks uh, work in small grains in the rotation, which is, is really helpful. So a lot, the, the small grains are, are not a host for sclerotinia and their canopy is dense enough that it triggers the formation of, of the apothecia. So you hmm. over a period of time of no-tilling and, you know, working in a small grains rotation, you could eventually, you know, rotate yourself out of that situation. We've seen some farmers be be successful if they were patient, you know, that process. So, you know, a long time those sclerotia can be there. And so you have to get creative in terms of just management and what, what your, your, your end game is going to be in terms of, are you going to try to eliminate those sclerotia or just live with them you know, on the soil profile? Is there any, so with the small grain conversation, is there any opportunity? opportunity to utilize cover crop or to try and diminish that population or is that too late in the season? Yeah, we're actually working on uh, looking at cover crops right now in white mold control. Uh, so we're working with Erin Silva here, our organic cropping system specialist. Uh, she's in our department of plant pathology here. And then uh, her and I have a graduate uh, student, uh, Kelly Debink, who's who's looking at this. And so, uh, again, I, I was talking earlier about how light's really important for that apothecial formation. Um, and Sarah Pethybridge at Cornell had looked at uh, roller crimped rye uh, cover mm-hmm. crops and, you know, the influence there. And, and they were, they uh, published a paper showing that in both uh, 
I believe it was snap bean and soybeans, uh, where they they used the roller crimping system. They were able to almost eliminate any infections wow. uh, in those years uh, using the the roller crimped uh, rye system. We're following up on some of that work. We're uh, looking at roller crimped rye, and we're also uh, trying to layer in some resistant varieties. Uh, this is all sort of in the non-GMO organic space uh, that we're that we're doing this right now, because that's where a lot of the questions and opportunities for this type of system would be. But uh, we're, we're having some decent success cutting down um, the level of infection where we use the roller crimped rye system. The downside of, of the crimping system though is that you have to wait a long time to to crimp that rye you have to wait till it gets to anthesis or flowering before you can come in and crimp so we're talking about you know you're delaying your soybean planting by a month or so yeah. uh, in our environment which is you know that's a hard pill to swallow oh, yeah. um, when you're when you're talking to uh, farmers so that is something that um you know, you have to consider, but there's a lot of successes and, and things that can happen there. Where we're kind of following up is uh, we, we're working with Rodrigo Worley, our, our weed scientist here at University of Wisconsin, trying to understand, you know, what, what about rye stubble, right? So if we went in and we took a rye cover crop off, uh, say, for, for forage or something like that, or we wanted to plant green and then terminate, uh, does that help reduce uh, some of that uh, white mold as well? And we think it can. We're, we're still working on getting some data there, but any way that you can sort of form a barrier or at least some obstacle for those, those microscopic spores uh, to be ejected up into the, into the soybean canopy, I think is a win, right? So having even some stubble there, I think can help reduce that. Probably not as much as having that nice thick mat of roller crimp dry there, but certainly some opportunities there. I have customers that have found success and they're not in areas that historically have significant white mold so it'd be anecdotal but have had customers that are starting to strip till plant soybeans into standing rye and then coming in and, and terminating the rye later and from a weed control standpoint it's really impressive right because you get that mat that lays down and and i wonder how that would affect that light permutation and oh, um nope. it would be an interesting concept to to play with yeah i think there's a lot of opportunities there you know again there's a lot of analogies uh with the white mold system and then thinking about weeds, right? So, you mm -hmm. know, you, you can envision that sclerotia basically like a weed seed. Yeah. The development of that epithecium is just like a, a seedling, you know, growing and, and, and doing its thing. So all those things that you're doing for weed control, I think, can carry over and help us, you know, to a certain extent on the white mold side as well. Yeah. So, so Damien, what do we know about, um, I've heard there's some biological controls people have been testing with, with white mold, you know, such as uh, the trichoderma fungus, which, you know, has been shown to have some anti-phytopathogenic activities, you know, whether it's competition, uh, mycoparasitism, antibiosis, um, or even, ho you know, the host-induced systemic resistance, um, you know, train of thought. Is, is there any science behind that? And what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, we've done work over the years. So probably the most um, widely known uh, biological out there for for white mold is a product called Contans. It's a oh, yeah. it's yep. a mycoparasitic fungus called Coniotherium, and uh, we've done some work with it over the years. It it does colonize the sclerotia and it basically eats you know in air quotes the the sclerotia and makes that sclerotia basically not viable anymore, right? So 
it, it does have some opportunities. We have uh, some folks up in our central uh, uh, central sands area in, in the middle of Wisconsin where we have a lot of center pivot irrigation there in uh, rotation with high value crops. They're using contans with some pretty good success there okay. uh, on some of those center pivots. And now we've seen that sort of expand uh, into some dry land uh, areas where folks are starting to utilize it. So I think there's some success there where, where you have to you have to sort of you have to be patient with a product though because it's you, you're putting another fungus out there and that yeah. fungus needs time to find those sclerotia, colonize those sclerotia. So that process, you know, just has to happen. And so I think there's an expectation I'm gonna spend this money and I'm gonna put this product out, it better work right away. It's yep. certainly not the way the, the biological world works, right? And so you have to have patience with it. It also does likely require another application, either a year or two later, uh, to keep building up that mycoparasitic population out there. Uh, but where where folks have been patient, they build that population, they sort of get that whole application uh, correct. Uh, they're seeing some some good successes there. We've also messed around a little bit with trichoderma. That's another mycoparasitic type uh, fungus uh, that's used uh, a lot in Brazil uh, where, where they have a lot of white mold problems in, in soybeans there. And I think there's some, some success there. It's been a little more hit and miss than the, than the contents thing, but I, I do think there's probably some opportunities uh, there as well. And then the other area that, that folks are looking at is, um, you know, inducing a, defense response in the plant, right? So can we apply a, a product uh, like a growth regulator or something like that that would ramp up, you know, uh, you know, in air quotes, an immune response in the plant? And we, we've looked at uh, some of these, you know, probably the, the best one that folks have actually looked at is actually using uh, the, the herbicide lactofen or Cobra. So yeah, yep. interestingly enough, what, what happens there is not only are you modifying the canopy of the plant, but you're actually upregulating the systemic acquired resistance response. So you, you're putting that product on and you actually ramp up a defense response, an active defense response in the plant. The downside that we've seen uh, with the lactofin story, though, is that, you know, we, we get a lot of burn. The, the, the oh, yeah. white mold suppression rate is a six ounce rate at the R1. So right at the start of flowering, and, and we've seen about a five bushel per acre loss uh, at the end of the Ooh. season on yield. Yeah, <laughs> so you control the white mold, but you're losing. <laughs> right. We've, we've, we're tweaking that system a little bit, though, where, you know, we've we've looked at some stuff real early, say at V2. Could we, could we come in and ramp up that response? And unfortunately, what happens is that response likely gets ramped up, but then dissipates as we get towards the, the bloom time. So. Yeah. What we're doing now is we're actually using the eight ounce um, rate at about the V4, V5 growth stage. And we're starting to get some data to suggest that could be a, a decent sweet spot uh, for using that for, for some white mold suppression. Now, that's not on the label, but, you know, you can you can use that rate for the weed control aspect and, and perhaps get um, some white mold suppression along the way uh, using that strategy. So, yeah. you know, folks are looking at these different things. There's some other, you know, molecules and biologicals out there that do similar things as well. We're looking at some of those in our organic systems. We haven't found anything that's super exciting yet, you know, out there. I, I still think resistance, you know, just good old genetic resistance in soybeans is probably going to be the way uh, forward, yep. you know, in terms of foundational management. But, uh, you know, there are some opportunities there in the biological side. 
That was a, that was a perfect segue to my next question, talking about you know we we've been talking about genetic resistance, and you know we had we had Marty Chilvers on here not too long ago. And we, yeah. we talked about the gene for gene theory, right? So where where do we sit with genetic resistance with white mold? Because I, I feel like we're not there yet. So have we have we identified any QTLs or anything to to start breeding for resistance, or where do we sit with with that? Yeah, there was a lot of active work in the in the nineties. For finding resistance, and and actually there was there was some resistance found. There was a there was a a, a PI or a, basically a selection that was made A by N dash one dash fifty five, which is the foundational genetics. Oh yeah, that, that one. Of, <laughs> well, yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah, right. So so that that was actually the foundational um, resistances that was in a lot of and probably still is in a lot of the commercial uh, germplasm. The problem is, is every time we, we go after a new trait, it seems like we lose some of the foundational resistance along the way because we're, we're trying to chase the trait thing. Right. So we, we, over the years we've had resistant varieties and then we lose them and then we have resistant varieties and then we lose them. And that's kind of been the story, you know, time and time again. And so folks wanted to go after the QTL thing. Right. And there's been some papers, including papers out of my lab looking at QTLs. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, there are QTLs that have been identified. The unfortunate part is, is this is truly quantitative and that you need a combination of all of these different QTLs in a certain order in order to get a level of resistance that would be acceptable, yeah. right? And so time and time again, people look for these things. They go through that whole process. They find a QTL. Uh, but it's not a major QTL, uh, and you have to have it combined with other things. So we've actually gone away from looking at QTLs. And in my lab, we've been working with uh, uh, Medi Kabaj here. He's very interested in host-parasite in- interactions. And he actually has been taking uh, a metabolomics approach. So he's he's looking at you know, what, what molecules are actually in uh, an active defense pathway in the plant, and can we capture those specific molecules and try to either upregulate or downregulate depending on how they interact with the fungus. And so we've had some success there of actually looking at some of those uh, molecules and then trying to uh, select for for those uh, specific molecules in our breeding program. So we're doing regular old crosses and and those sorts of things and and then trying to capture some of that level of what we call active resistance in the plant to try to, you know, improve, you know, varietal resistance out there. And we've had some success. We do have some, uh, again, they're non-GMO conventional varieties, but we we have identified some some lines that we're releasing to our Wisconsin Foundation uh, seed program for increase. And they do seem to be quite resistant to white mold, not, Hmm. not, you know, immune, but, yep. but highly resistant. I think the other opportunities out there are going to be, you know, CRISPR uh, technology. So oh, yeah. actually modifying, yep. you know, these specific genes and turning things, you know, on and off, depending on, you know, which way that particular molecule interacts with the fungus. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity there uh, in the biotech world as we move forward. Unfortunately, I think, you know, a high level of resistance in white mold is going to be really hard to achieve through just conventional breeding, right? So how do you stack these QTL that are on a lot of times on different chromosomes? How do you get them all in the right combination while still back crossing to maintain yield? That's, yeah. that's really the, 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 the problem and where, you know, why, 
yield gain and uh, white mold resistance has been tough uh, to achieve over time. As we think about grower management, uh, as we think about grower management, you've mentioned a couple things. So you've mentioned, you know, population and, and row spacing, um, some of the concepts about cover crops or, uh, or, or other plants. Um, what are growers doing that are hurting themselves in white mold and soybeans? There are practices you can point to. We talked about population. Um, yeah, I, I think that's still one of the, at least the, the farmers we run into around here, I think that's still actually one of the, the, the biggest issues is the, the mindset is I still need to plant 160,000, 180,000. Yep. You know, we, we have seen folks move away from drilled beans. I don't see too, too many drills uh, okay. being used for soybeans anymore. So that's a good thing. But I, I still see really high populations. And I think yep. folks can, can get serious about uh, reducing those populations, again, especially on the heavy white mold acres. You don't need to do it across the whole farm. You know, not every field is going to be 100% infested. So if you kind of know where those hot spots are, that's where you kind of get, in my mind, that's where you get really serious about dropping those populations. But that still seems to be the one. It's just uneasy. It's uncomfortable. We've, you know, over the years, you know, you got to plant big planting populations for soybeans, right, to get your yield. And Come to find out that the modern genetics in these soybeans, they can really compensate at those low at those low populations and maintain good economic yields. You know, even at even at populations, Sean wouldn't probably recommend this, but even at populations down 80, 85,000, you know, he's he's been showing some decent economic yields there. Yep. So I think that's where folks have to just get serious, maybe not go, you know, 100 or 120,000 across all their acres, but just, you know, experiment with it a little bit and just, just take their time, you know, and, and look at it against their higher populations and convince themselves in their own system that, that it, that is something to, to look at. Again, I think, you know, the 30 versus 15s, you know, yes, 30s are going to reduce it all day long. Uh, but, you know, you can go to 15s and maintain that yield uh, potential there. So I think that's where folks just need to get serious is populations and then look at resistant varieties. And this is where it gets frustrating because yeah. when they go through the seed catalog, they're all five. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you for no help at all. <laughs> right. So, but, but if you, you know, a lot of the local folks, you know, and, and you guys know where the better resistant varieties are. And so just, just helping the farmer through that, that process and, you know, again, resistance is partial. It's not complete immunity, but there are certainly varieties there that are, um, you know, are, are decently resistant. And yeah. so being able to capture those and, and use those, especially on the heavy white mold ground, I think is is really, really important. And then I think the third thing from a sort of a planting standpoint is just not be so crazy about pushing the maturity group. I really think that you know, in these really heavy white mold areas where we're really pushing maturity groups, that's where we get ourselves in trouble. And just being, you know, reasonable with yourself and that, all right, I can grow this range of maturity group and I'm going to I'm going to stick to that and, and utilizing that maturity group so that we don't have these bloom times that get, yeah. you know, 
spanned out over a month or more. Yep. I think that's really where we get ourselves in, in trouble is you just give the fungus so much opportunity in that type of situation. Yeah. So, so Damon, when, when you're looking at, um, you know, white mold incidence and severity, you know, I remember when we had Sean Conley on here, we, we were talking about just high yield soybean management. And, and one of the things that we were discussing was obviously potash. And he was talking about some of his research where lower potash numbers, you know, he was seeing increased incidence with uh, aphids, for example. Have, have you noticed anything with white mold as, as far as nutrient deficiency or even just stress in general that will increase incidence and severity? Yeah, well, white mold's interesting in that, um, if a, if a plant is stressed um, and has a shorter stature or, you know, the canopy's not filling in quite as good, the white mold will actually be less. And when I started here at Wisconsin, and Craig Grau was still here, you know, mentoring me a little bit. And, and Craig always told me, you will never have white mold in a heavy soybean cyst nematode field. And he's right. I You know, we've been in heavy, you know, soybean cyst fields where those plants are stressed, the canopies are short. They're not going to fill as fast, and you're not going to have a white mold problem. So it's really where the plants are really healthy. They're growing really fast, and they get really high, you know, are really dense canopies, right? That's where white mold becomes really an issue. And here in Wisconsin, being the dairy state, we got a lot of manure going out. And, oh, yeah. you know, and sometimes you find, you know, soybeans on ground that's, you know, high in nitrogen, and, and we just finished up some work looking at this where we compared base level nitrogen to high nitrogen. Uh, we use urea just to try to get the nitrogen levels higher. And we certainly see a significant increase in white mold where we had, you know, high levels of nitrogen. And it wasn't hard to pick those plots out. I mean, those those canopies were big. They're dense. You know, you're thinking high yield and, you know, and, yeah. and unfortunately you're, you're pushing white mold. So it's, it's almost counterintuitive yeah. when it comes yep. to the white mold side, you know, deficient, you know, sort of in air quotes, unhealthy soybeans are probably not going to be as, as big of a magnet for white mold as your uh, real healthy, big, you know, dense soybeans are. Yeah, that makes a lot of com uh, makes a lot of sense based on the conversation we've had today. Um, we want to honor your time here. We've got just a couple more quick things. I, I know we're grilling you. Um, <laughs> we kind of started talking a little bit about fungicide at the beginning of the episode. Walk us through um, how well do fungicide works? Um, specific uh, fungicides that work better than others uh, help help our audience think about fungicide and timing of application. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing with fungicides is folks just need to understand that it's not perfect, right? So, yeah. and I and when I pitch this, I, I talk about fungicides just, just you know, they're just making a bad situation less bad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the first thing because I, I walk into a lot of fields where folks use a fungicide and they're just really unhappy, and I ask them where the check strip is. Well, I didn't put one out. I, you know, I always tell them, well, if you had had a check strip, it would have looked a lot worse, right? So it still looks bad, but it could look even worse, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing is we just have to lower expectations when it comes to the fungicide thing because we're we're sort of when it comes to white mold, we're just sort of putting a band-aid on a on a bad situation. Mm -hmm. So so we, we need to adjust that mindset a little bit. As far as you know product and, and timing, we've done a ton of work uh, over the years on that. And when I got here 10 years ago, you know, the R1 growth stage was where we were really targeting uh, fungicide applications at that time. And, and we've seen it over the last five years or so, we've seen that now drift uh, actually to, toward the first 
pod uh, or that R3 uh, growth stage, that's where we're actually starting to see improved um, uh, you know, efficacy there. And we think part of that is due to the fact, again, that folks are pushing maturity group, which draws the bloom time out a bit. Yeah. And then our, our weather uh, lately has been actually lining up with uh, that R3 timing. So we've changed our recommendations a bit based on our latest work. And, and you know, this is work that's been going on across Iowa and Michigan and Wisconsin and, and, and northern Indiana. I've been working with colleagues in all those states. So, so the recommendations are now drifting, you know, to that R3. Uh, in terms of product, uh, Endura, so this Boscolid uh, product, uh, you know, remains sort of what we call the Cadillac uh, that we compare everything uh, to. Uh, and so if we use an 8-ounce uh, Endura rate at, you know, at that R3 timing and we just broadcast spray over the top, it, it really does a pretty good job in terms of reducing uh, incidence and severity. But keep in mind, the, the best that does is on a, especially a susceptible variety is about a 50% reduction, right? Okay. So it's, it can still look bad, <laughs> you know, but it could look a lot worse had you, had you not used it. We've also looked at, you know, lactofen. I talked about, you know, Cobra, that herbicide for suppression. That seems to be an option there as well. And then some of these other products coming online, Delaro Complete, uh, Miravis Neo, some of those are are also viable solutions, although they're not going to be quite as good as that Endura uh, fungicide product. One area where we've been... Um, working on most recently is actually application technology and and so one of our one of the really good active ingredients is is omega uh it's a, it's a, a product from uh, syngenta and that product is really a primarily a contact uh fungicide so it just sort of forms a barrier on the outside of the plant doesn't get readily absorbed in, in the plant and over the years if we just broadcast spray Omega, it's been sort of hit and miss, um, and especially if we're broadcasting over the top of these really dense canopies at that R3 growth stage. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be really hard to drive that that fungicide down into the into the canopy because you really kind of need that fungicide down in the mid mid section of the of the plant. So if we're thinking about where those spores are actually yeah. going, they're going to the mid mid stem area and affecting those flowers there. So what we've been doing is working with a, an engineer, an ag engineer here, Brian Luck uh, at, at University of Wisconsin, and we're using drop drop nozzle 360 um, heads, and we've yeah. been having some success really boosting the efficacy of omega and these contact fungicides trying to give us another option there uh the the downside is is you know that 360 nozzle is expensive how much damage are you actually going to be imparting in the canopy as you as you're dragging this thing through the through the canopy and and those sorts of things so we've still got to work on the logistics but you know, there are some options, I think, on the application side of things to try to improve uh, the fungicide efficacy and just getting a little bit creative in terms of how do we actually make sure we get that fungicide uh, driven down into that midsection of, of the stem where we really need the protection. Yeah. Damon, this has been absolutely awesome. Um, I can usually tell how much I've enjoyed a podcast based on my notes. Uh, and uh, these, you and me these both. are going to have to get locked away. Um, we do a segment at the end of our, at the end of our podcast. Uh, Andrew Penny is my co-host. I like to cash in my penny and ask Andrew for uh, a couple succinct takeaways. And, and I'd invite you, Damon, to uh, criticize or applaud his takeaways. I don't, I don't know how you're supposed to uh, narrow this down to three, but, but Andrew, uh, let's cash in the penny. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, Sean. I mean, uh, yeah, you can definitely tell how, how much I learned based on my notes. And this was uh, another one where I got quite a bit of notes. So I'm going to try my, try my best to summarize what, what Damon taught me. So I think one of my key takeaways, if, if you are a grower that is on 15s, maybe thinking about going to 30s just because of white mold, it sounds like maybe just reducing your populations is, is a good route to go. Um, second one, um, you know, it, we've talked about this on numerous podcasts. I think there's a lot of maturity shifts going on with both soybeans and corn. Maybe think about shortening up that maturity, right? Reduce mm-hmm. that that flowering window to decrease your chance of of uh, getting white mold. And and then a big one, I think you know, I think this just gets discussed quite a bit with multiple different diseases um, in in weed seeds. Obviously, clean out that combine if, yeah. if you're doing some custom harvest or if you have a field that you know has white mold issues. You know, take the half an hour to maybe blow out or, or spray out the, the combine to decrease the spread of that sclerotia. And, and then, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have four key takeaways we're having here. four today. <laughs> uh, we're going to have four. I, I think, you know, fungicide, I've, you know, management, you know, you, using a foliar product often gets discussed with white mold. Focus on that R3 timing. It, look, it looks like you guys have research and data to show that if, if you're going to think about, you know, reducing, put it in a, a bandaid on that white mold issue, put, you know, use that, that R3 application window or, or timing to, to make that application. Damon, anything you'd add? He's got it, man. He, he was listening <laughs> intently. Today. I wish I wish my students would listen uh, that intently to myself. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's practice makes perfect. Because when we started this podcast, we've had guests on here that I'm just taking notes and you know trying to lead the conversation. And I'm getting better at this, but it's still hard when you have this much information thrown at you. <laughs> yeah, Damon. Um, as we as we get ready to sign off here, tell our listeners if if they want to access. Um, you what's what's the best way to do that social media or, or some of the resources you've talked about yeah we uh, we tag the badger crop doc um twitter handle so that's um if you want to find me on twitter badger crop doc uh, or you can get us on our website and the, our blog which is actually the, the same site we run the blog right on on the front page so that's badger crop doc all one word dot com so badger crop doc dot com all the contact information, a lot of our latest research is there. We also uh, link over to the Crop Protection Network. So I'm involved pretty heavily with the Crop Protection Network. Yep. And you can find uh, we've got a white mold book up there. Uh, so if you didn't if you didn't take good notes uh, today, <laughs> you, can, you can go check out the, the white mold book, which probably has way more than you ever wanted to know about uh, white mold and its management and soybeans over there, as, lo- as well as some fact sheets and some other things there. And then the other site, uh, and we mentioned this earlier, is our NPM website, so ipcm.wisc.edu. Uh, there's some real good, helpful things there, including our apps. So there's two uh, white mold focus apps actually available uh, and you can find information there. So our, our one app is Sporecaster, which is our forecasting tool, uh, which is freely available uh, uh, through the iPhone and Android platforms. And then we also have a fungicide uh, uh, economic calculator. So we worked with a, an economist here at, at Wisconsin just trying to get a lay of the land in terms of the economics. And you can run different scenarios in terms of yield potential and cost of product and, and some of those things with a few of the fungicide uh, products there. So that one's called Spore Buster. Uh, that app. So you can find those both there as well. And then there's some, uh, you know, videos, including the the combine cleaning video you can find uh, off that IPCM website as well. You know, Damon, this has been excellent. Uh, uh, Andrew told me you're an expert, truly, uh, truly appreciate the time. Um, Andrew, uh, give our audience a teaser about uh, next week. 
Yeah, so next week we are going to dig deep into rootworm management. So we are going to discuss the science behind, um, you know, the the life cycle and just corn rootworm in general. And then we are going to dig deep into management, you know, and and have that discussion. You know, we got new traits available and we got some new issues, you know, dealing with that that we're dealing with as far as uh, extended diapause and the, the Western corn rootworm variant. So, yeah. Very good. Look forward to it. I love it. Damon, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you for all the, the, the research and, and, uh, uh, the, the 10 years you've spent working on this. We, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, Damon. Thanks for having me on guys. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And as always, I love talking about my first love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really good. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. See you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com, or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.